2: We are breaking down all aspects of Yankee baseball. This is the Bronx Pinstripe Show with your host, Andrew Rotondi and Scott Reinen. Let's go. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Bronx Pinstripe Show. Today, we're previewing the Mets as well as the NL East with Tim Britton, senior writer for The Athletic. He covers the New York Mets. Tim, what's up? Thanks
3: for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Just a couple of days of opening day. Excited about it.
2: The the AL and NL East are shaping up to be two of the most exciting divisions in baseball. They were already last year as well, but not just the most exciting, but also most competitive with all of the teams, you know, specifically for the NL East, the Mets, the Braves, and the Phillies all vying for that top spot.
3: Yeah, I mean, the, there's, there's not many divisions. These are probably the only two in baseball where you can look around and say there are three legitimate World Series contenders in them uh in the, the NL East you've got Atlanta's won the division five years running they won 101 games last year they won the 2021 World Series uh you've got Philly who went to the World Series last year uh and looks like the kind of team that when it gets into the tournament is pretty dangerous once it gets there and then you've got the Mets who won 101 games last year uh and had very little to show for it come October you know Atlanta caught them uh the last week of the season uh to win the division and then the Mets bowed out in the wild card round against the Padres and then spent a lot of money in the off season uh, to bring back uh, uh, many of the same guys, but with some replacement play, replacement pieces in there as well. You've got Trey Turner and Sean Murphy joining the division as well. Uh, it's just going to be, uh, I think, a, a six month long battle among those teams at the top of the NL East. Is that what Mets fans are grasping onto? It's
2: it's going to be our turn this year. Two, the other two teams have gone to the World Series the past two years, so now it's now it's our turn.
3: I mean, you look at the last three full 162 game seasons, you've had the Nationals win the World Series, oh, Atlanta right. win the World Series, and, and Philly go to the World Series. So this, you know, you, if you get a full season, the NL East usually usually wins out in the end, it seems. I got
2: to be honest with you, the 2019 season seems like a lifetime <laughs> ago.
3: <laughs> it, is, it is. I mean, ask Nationals fans, right? Like, yeah.
2: For sure. I don't even know if we're going to be spending a minute on them in this pod, but what the Mets did this offseason, you know, obviously as Yankees fans and as a Yankees podcast, um, we we like to just keep tabs with the Mets. And I'm not one of those Yankees fans that thinks everything the Mets do is, is awful and I'm not like necessarily a Mets hater. I found just Steve Cohen to be fascinating and how he's operating to be fascinating and the fact that they have just spent so much and so much and so much. And I know the Correa thing didn't work out. I actually think that might be a blessing in disguise for the Mets. But uh, just like, what's your take on how he has been operating on just, we're just going to keep spending and we're not going to care what anyone else is is saying?
3: Yeah, I mean, it was a really interesting conversation kind of before the offseason of of what would Steve Cohen do? Because they had... Uh, Obviously a very good team last year but to bring back most of the same players was going to take a significant investment above and beyond what last year's payroll was. So Cohen had told the New York Post late last season that you know, I think you can build a pretty good team for $300 million. and He had done that in 2022. But it was not going to be easy to do that for the 2023 Mets. And that's why their payroll is so much higher. year than it was last year in order to to bring back edwin diaz you have to pay him more in order to bring back brandon Nimmo, you have to pay him more in order to uh you know to to replace jacob grom at the top of the rotation you have to pay more for either him or someone like justin Verlander. uh and so cohen has has kind of harped on this idea that this is the short-term plan you know it's kind of like what the dodgers did when guggenheim partners came in and owned them last decade spend a lot in the short term build up the farm system uh and hopefully You know, the next, you know, by the time these contracts are running out four and five years from now, uh, you have better replacements, younger players can come in and you can pay uh, more reasonable salaries to without needing to go to the open market. You know, we'll see if that lasts, if that works out, you've got to develop the players. Uh, It doesn't always work out that way. Uh, But it's really nice when your plan B is the richest owner in the sport. It only seems
2: like the Braves are able to keep their young talent intact for somehow less money every year. But yeah, no, that's why I liked what they did. I, I liked pivoting from DeGrom to Verlander because of that short-term commitment to Verlander. And if you're just looking at it in a vacuum on who's going to be a better pitcher in-, in the next year or two, it's it's frankly a-, a coin flip, right? Like DeGrom has more health concerns than Verlander, even though he he recently had surgery but he's been one of the most durable pitchers in history. So as far as like what this Mets team needed, it, it made a lot of sense to me, but DeGrom was, he was the Met, he was, he was the number one, you know he was the face of the Mets uh, in, in my opinion, you know, maybe Pete Alonso in more recent years, but DeGrom was the face of the Mets and, and to let him walk, I thought took some balls. And, and um, was that decision met with, um, with any hate among fans? I I
3: think the way the last couple of seasons had gone for Jacob deGrom, you know, really the last season and a half. So the All-Star break in 2021, where he's going into the All-Star break with, I think, a 1-0-8 ERA. His ERA had been under one the entire first half of the season until his last start before the break. Uh, And then doesn't pitch again the rest of that season. Misses the first four months of 2022. Comes back and and doesn't look quite like, you know, quite like the dominant one ERA kind of ace that he had been uh, the year before. I think that kind of, prepared some fans you know that this was not Jacob DeGrom leaving after the second of two consecutive Cy Young Awards uh this wasn't Jacob DeGrom leaving after uh you know excelling in the postseason the way he had in 2015 uh this was Jacob DeGrom looking somewhat diminished at the end of last season uh, and then being replaced by a guy who just won the American League Cy Young Award I do think you know if you ask 30 Major League Baseball teams in a vacuum. You can have Justin Verlander for two years or Jacob deGrom for five at those numbers. I think most of them would take Verlander. Uh, The Mets did have to factor in that this is a a generational player for your franchise. And and probably, you know, depending on how you feel about Doc Gooden, the second or third best pitcher in franchise history and what value do you place on that? Uh, But I think, you know, the if DeGrom had been uh, lights out the way he had been for so, so long the last couple of years, it would have been a, a more difficult decision. Uh, the way he was kind of trending made it a little easier on the Mets and for the fan base to swallow.
2: And what has the vibe been after the Carlos Correa thing just fell apart?
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, <laughs> it was a, a very weird off season for that <laughs> with that, <laughs> that it happened to wasn't just the Mets. I, you know, I, I feel like the giants were kind of vindicated by it also falling apart with the Mets. Yeah. Um, you know, Steve Cohen had come out and said, "You know, I feel like this is the final piece." Uh, and when you say that, and the the guy, you don't land the guy, and then you don't go out and get another final piece, uh, it kind of it feels like an open parenthesis uh, without being closed. And and we'll see how that uh, how that goes across the rest of the season, how that transpires for them, because the offense does feel at times when you look at it like it might be that one more middle of batter, middle of the order bat short, especially when you compare it to Philadelphia and Atlanta. So uh, you know, I, I think. Like you said, it might be best long term for the Mets that, that this fell through with Correa. You know they've still got the chance to sign other free agents uh, in, in other winters, but for the 2023 Mets, you'd probably rather have Carlos Correa than not. Do you believe in karma at all? <laughs> <laughs> depends who I'm talking to.
2: you know. It just felt like I've said this before uh, with how Carlos Correa handled the whole Astros cheating scandal, a little bit of karma on what he went through this offseason. And I know he's still a great player. I'm not diminishing that. And he ended up signing for a lot of money in Minnesota still. He, he's not struggling, but uh, just just the two massive contracts that fell through. So a little part of me took joy in that. So the, the Edwin Diaz injury, I think, is obviously a, a massive blow to the Mets. Uh, he was going to be leading the bullpen. And I'm looking up and down that bullpen. I'm like, how the hell are they going to replace that? You can't replace Edwin Diaz there. But, you know, I know there's Adam Adavino and old friend David Robertson in the bullpen. But how are they going to replace those innings from Diaz?
3: Yeah, I mean, the, the really hard thing is... Even Edwin Diaz in 2023 was unlikely to be as good as 2022 Edwin Diaz because that's, that's kind of the standard that he had set uh, for himself last season. So it's going to be a large drop-off. Uh, I think, you know, you look at the, the three guys they've talked about are, are Robertson, Adovino, uh and lefty Brooks-Raley. They could g- kind of go with matchups where it's, if it's a bunch of tough righties, it's Ottavino, If it's a bunch of tough lefties, it's Raley. If it's a mix, it's Robertson because he's got reverse splits. I think in the end, it probably ends up being Robertson more often than not. He's got the most closing experience of the three. He's got closing experience in New York. He's got closing experience in New York replacing a closer who was really, really good. So uh, if you're drawing up kind of your ideal candidate to step in in this role, it's someone who looks at least historically, like David Robertson. You you can be worried about the actual performance and and how his season went last year where he got off to an excellent start with the Cubs and kind of faded down the stretch with Philadelphia. You know, the the walk rate jumped up a little bit during his time with the Phillies. It's always been a little bit elevated. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. But in terms of, you know, you're not going to get a Diaz caliber reliever to replace him either within your own bullpen or even in July. But the Mets can feel like they've built enough depth to get by uh, for the time being.
2: Yeah, I mean, the injury is obviously extremely unfortunate, especially because it happened in the WBC tournament, which I enjoyed this year, like certainly enjoyed, and I, I wish m- even more stars played in the WBC, like I wish Aaron Judge was playing it, it for Team USA in the WBC. But do you think injuries like that, or the Altuve injury, which I understand was a little bit of a fluke, like, is gonna give even more hesitancy to some of these owners and GMs allowing their superstars to play next time around? I mean, I think it
3: really comes down to how the players feel because there are, you know, the the players kind of get to make the decision. The team can kind of frown upon it from afar. Uh, But unless there is an an injury going on like the the Mets had with Starling Marte, Starling Marte wanted to play for the Dominican Republic. But because he was coming off off offseason surgery, the Mets kind of nudge him more than they could. Uh, A player who had had a a fully healthy offseason. So I I think the the quality of the games and the excitement of the tournament as a whole probably has more players excited to play in it in 2026 rather than them looking at uh, a couple of uh, kind of freakish injuries and being worried about it.
2: And you can get injured at any time. Like the Yankees nudged Luis Severino not to play. And then as it turns out, Luis Severino got hurt in Tampa. So it's like, who's to say? You know what the right thing to do is it's just it's it, it's extremely hard i could put myself like i remember when mark Teixeira went down in the 2013 wbc and that kind of ruined his entire season for the yankees it's like i mean he wasn't even with the team and he got injured and that sort of derails like a key cog to our lineup that just sucked as a fan right so it's like i i, I can understand how you know those those different views are and like why it's a really difficult decision
3: yeah, you, you see it from both sides, that if, if you're a player and the chance to suit up with, you know, your nation's name across your chest, you don't get to do that very often. Uh, and especially for guys who are, are not from the U.S. originally and get to play for their home countries in front of raucous atmospheres. You know, that Marlins Park does not look like or sound like it did in WBC uh, no. <laughs> in, in June when the Mets come to visit for a three game series. Uh, so to, to play in that atmosphere uh, is, is awesome for them uh, and, and to play for their home country. Uh, and then for fans, you know, it's, it's, you know, if you grew up a, a Mets fan, a Yankees fan, a, a Cardinals fan, uh, you're just thinking like, I don't care about this. I just the, the World Series is what matters. Right. Uh, and, and players don't always feel the same way.
2: So tell us a little bit about the rotation behind the two names. Everyone knows, obviously, Scherzer and uh, Verlander, Cody uh, Senga. Am I saying that correctly? Kode Senga, yes, yeah. who they signed out of Japan. What does he project to be at the major league level?
3: Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. It's harder to project a guy coming over from, from Japan than it is yeah. a guy who's just coming up from, through the minor leagues or from some some other team. You know, you look at Senga, I, I've looked at like what guys who who make that transition from NPB to MLB look like, you know, taking kind of like an ERA plus from their time in Japan and what they look like in the major leagues. And he, he looks a little bit kind of like um, uh, Hisashi Iwakuma did with the Mariners, mm-hmm. uh, a guy who, who kind of, you know, is, is not your number one starter. Maybe at times pitches like a number two, but kind of settles into a, a mid-rotation starter. I think that's kind of what the Mets hope is. Uh, to be fair, saying struck out a lot more guys in Japan than, than Iwakuma did. Uh, it's a lot harder to strike out guys in Japan than it is here. Uh, and he had one of the highest strikeout rates of any starter over there. So uh, I think that projects well for him. You know, he works with a, a forkball uh, splitter. That is his trademark pitch. He struggled to throw it in spring training a bit because he's getting used to the larger baseball but that is a pitch we've seen with Masahiro.
2: with Tanaka. With, with when, Tanaka yeah.
3: and, and with, you know, I, I used to cover the Red Sox. They have Koji Uohara and Junichi Tozawa. Both of them really utilize uh, a fork ball to great effect out of the bullpen. So the thought is, you know, if he gets that pitch going, that it can be really effective because you just don't see many like it. Uh, you know, he threw live BP to a couple hitters earlier this spring. And Pete Alonso said, I've never seen a pitch quite like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the, the hope from the Mets side is that, you know, you pay a little – you get a, a pitcher with for a little bit less salary-wise because of the risk there, but you hope that there's a higher reward in him than there would be in, say, re-signing Taiwan Walker, who, who went to Philadelphia for a similar price.
2: Right. Yeah, because the, the salary is one thing I wanted to bring up because five for 75, that was about half of what Tanaka got from, from the Yankees. And like you said, Tanaka was a number one pitcher. There was no question about that. And I think that was the you know, unanimous opinion when he came over from Japan. But to me, if you're getting a, a solid three with two upside for $75 million, that seems like really good value. I understand there's unknown there. I understand he's already 30 years old and Tanaka was like 26 when he came over. So it's kind of an apples to oranges comparison. But if you're just looking at it from pure value, what the going rate for a starting, like a good starting pitcher is in today's game, that seems like good value.
3: Yeah, I mean, and you looked at, at what happened in the free agency market for those kind of mid rotation guys last year. Guys like Walker, guys like Jamison Tyone. Everyone's getting got $19 paid, million. Dollars. Yeah, they, they, got, they made a lot of money. And so, getting a guy who, who might be better than those guys, you feel has a chance to be better than them, uh, that maybe has a little bit more upside than your usual 30 year old starter, uh, that's what the Mets were looking for. I mean, even if they're
2: comparable, you're saving you know 30% on the guy, And I know Steve Cohen, he needs the extra couple million bucks.
0: <laughs> like, what's he going to do?
2: So let's, uh, let's talk about it in context to the rest of the division. I was looking at Zip's, uh, Zips projections uh, before we started recording, and the Braves and Mets are both projected to win 94 games. And then surprisingly, the Phillies nine games behind them. Which um, I know the Phillies got super hot towards uh, down the stretch. that They rode that to the World Series. But how do you see this division shaking out?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the difference between Atlanta and New York um, at the top of the division in Philly, uh, a little bit behind them, is probably just the depth on the rosters. You know, you look at what what Philadelphia might have, you know, they're they're without Reese Hoskins probably for the whole season. They're without Bryce Harper for at least the first couple months uh, in June. You know, they they don't have kind of the guys who just step up and, and fill in. Pretty easily, pretty seamlessly. There, they're reaching into their depth a little bit more uh, than than the Mets or Braves might in the, in a similar situation. So, I think I think that's what separates them. Over 162 games, yeah. you know, and I've covered Dave Dombrowski. It's a very Dave Dombrowski roster. It's top heavy. It's got a lot of stars. You know, their their fourth starter uh, might be Bailey Falter at the start of the year. Uh, their fifth starter might be Matt Strom. But you know, eventually they'll get there. Uh, And and you look at what that team might do to you in October if, okay, you've got Nola, you've got Wheeler, Walker's now the number three starter in there, Ranger Suarez is pretty good, and you've got a a middle of the order that includes Real Muto, Harper, uh, Trey Turner... Uh, Nick Castellanos like that yeah you see why that's a, a Kyle Schwarber like that's <laughs> that's a really good lineup that's tough to get out uh, and so I think that's that's what makes Philadelphia probably more dangerous in October than they are April to September of course you know they could come out and win 100 games I don't think it would surprise anyone uh, if they went out and did that I just look at it, Atlanta is to me is the team in the division It has the most answers to whatever questions the season's going to bring up like if if they have problems in their rotation okay they've got mike soroka who almost won rookie of the year in 2019 uh they've got ian anderson uh who was a postseason hero for them in 2021 uh you know their their bullpen they've got a couple different possible answers like nick anderson a guy who was really good for the Rays a couple years ago is is starting off in triple a for them uh and You know, you look at what their roster did last year. Sure, Michael Harris in second might not be quite as good as he was after he got called up last year and won Rookie of the Year. But Ronald Acuna Jr. is probably going to be better, and and Matt Olson is probably going to be better. And, And though they lost Dansby Swanson, they bring in Sean Murphy, a guy who, if you've ever looked at his home road splits, is probably going to be a lot better away from the Oakland Coliseum than he was playing there. So... Uh, that that that's what separates them i think from I, I mean i'd pick atlanta to win probably any division in baseball uh, so that's literally. exactly
2: what i was going to say so i I was reading something that said that they believe that the braves roster has the highest floor of any contender in major league baseball doesn't mean they're going to be the best team but just that having the highest floor especially going into a long season can can you know be the differentiating factor between winning a division. But now more so than ever, the Phillies have proved this, the National proved this a couple years ago. Many teams have proven this. You just got to get in the tournament. And the tournament's now expanded. The regular season now is going to be even more with the balanced schedule, I think, um going to be benefiting some teams like the Mets and the Yankees and teams in these tough divisions that uh, can beat up on some of these other divisions a little bit more than having to play 19 times against the Phillies, 19 times against... Against the Braves, so it's just about getting in the tournament. And whether you like that or not, like that's not what I'm, I'm sort of getting at. Like fans, I you know it goes back and forth. Like oh, baseball should should be like how it was the old way. It's like you got to win your division or else you don't get into the playoffs because it's 162 games. But really, like you see these these rosters, you're like, yeah, I could see how that could be a really tough out in a five or a seven game series.
3: Yeah, it's really interesting how the playoffs worked out in that expanded format the first season because in the American League you had pretty much chalk you know i think seattle upset uh toronto in the, the wild card series but otherwise the home the team that home home field advantage won each series there when the National league it was the opposite of that you had the six seed beating the five seed in, in the nlcs uh and a lot of chaos over there so you can see both ways you can go I, I don't you know it used to be that you'd worry sometimes that some general managers would look at that last wild card and say you know why are we going to try to push our, our chips into the table just to play one game against a really good team on the road, you know, to, to play one game at Dodger Stadium or something right. like that? But now that you've got a three-game series, uh, it, it probably uh, incentivizes some teams to, to try to, to win that 87th, 88th game a little bit more than it used to.
2: And then the argument that we were so graciously uh, um, got to witness as the owners and the players were fighting to get back onto the field after the, the COVID season is that the expanded playoffs allows more markets to be in it in september and even if you're you're fighting for the last wild card spot to go play at dodger stadium if you're playing meaningful baseball games throughout the month of september that's that's valuable to a franchise
3: yeah and i I think what you want to see you know so many teams have made the decision over the last decade that like there's no difference between going 75 and 87 and 55 and 107 uh and and to me, there's still a pretty large gap there. Uh, and that, you know, now if you're looking at your team and you think, you know, we might only win 75 games, but, you know, if we do, if a couple things break our way, if we add one big piece, then maybe we're winning 84 games and that might be enough to get us in. You hope that's how that's how teams look at it. I'm not sold that that is how they're going to look at it, but you hope that that's, that's what drives them forward
2: i guess the the counter argument there like you pointed the astros and how they tanked for basically most of the decade and then all of a sudden their roster was filled with these young these young superstars and and they won i think they lost excuse me a couple times well over a 100 games if i'm not if i'm not wrong
3: yeah i think and they so, lost 106 or more three yeah. straight years and so
2: for for them they clearly had a plan and that plan was tanked
3: yeah, so it, it's and we'll see how it plays out for other teams. Like the Tigers yeah. have tried that and it hasn't worked out. Damn, uh, the, the, the Pirates the are still in the midst of it. You know, like the Orioles are on what year six of the rebuild. But they had
2: a really positive <laughs> jump forward last year. Yeah, anyway. so
3: we'll see if you know, like that was kind of what Houston did in I think twenty fifteen, the year they first made the playoffs. Yeah uh, was was get up above five hundred and then see where it goes. The the thing is Houston reinvested in that roster at that point you know, they ran super low payrolls for a while yeah when the roster got good you know they were bringing in uh josh reddick and carlos beltron and uh some other free agents for Charlie were Mort- at
2: the deadline to yeah. you know paying him a boatload of money
3: and and the same you know when the cubs took their step back they you know they, they started signing john lester and guys like that to big money deals we haven't seen the orioles get to that point you know with, with some other teams uh pittsburgh and detroit You know, are they going to spend that amount of money to keep a good core if and when that core arrives? A couple
2: more things I want to touch on before we wrap up. Do you think Steve Cohen is conscious of like headlines in New York and and competing with the Yankees for headlines?
3: Uh, I think he's a PR conscious guy. Uh, You you don't get to his point. (laughs) You don't get to where he is without knowing a little bit about what's going on uh, in terms of public relations. I don't think he's not, you know, the the prior ownership of the wool Ponds was very conscious about it and, and kind of, you know, wanted the back page as often as possible, tried to tried to tried to win the back page in a way that I think Cohen believes it'll it'll probably happen more organically for him than it ever did for the wool Ponds.
2: Well do you think he's as obsessed with it as George Steinbrenner was?
3: Uh, no, I I don't know that anyone could be really (laughs) because Hal Steinbrenner (laughs) clearly
2: is not right. Like I'm not saying Hal Steinbrenner doesn't want to be the number one team in, in the city. Like I'm not naive. Of course he does. And he wants there to be good press about the Yankees. He wants better press than the Mets, but I think it's, it's much more, we're just going to be running a stable organization. That's got a good business model. And yes, we want to win the world series, but we also want to be mindful of, you know, how much money we're making or losing every year. So yeah, that, that's something that that was curious how Cohen would act once he came in because he sort of gave me a little bit of Stein, George Steinbrenner vibes.
3: Yeah, I mean, you, you talked. I, I did a big story on him when he bought the team and talked to different people and and they, they would say, you know, it's it's going to be like George Steinbrenner. Uh, we just don't know how he's going to respond to the losing because <laughs> this was a guy who did not respond well to losing when it's his money in a hedge fund. Right. You know that that he's known for his temper uh, on Wall Street uh but he's kind of taken it in stride for the most part so far there there have been a couple tweets here and there especially in the 21 season uh that that rankled whether it's his own front office his own clubhouse he's saying he's never seen hitters be this unproductive uh if i remember the phrasing right uh you know he's he's learned from that and i think
2: george Steinbrenner had twitter back in the 80s (laughs) you
3: know I, i i think it's funny how uh because of the success the Yankees had really, like the last 15 years of George's life, uh, there is this thought that he was always this best, the, the best owner you could be. Uh, and then mm-hmm. you can go back to what things were like for them nope. uh, in the 80s and early 90s. It was, you know, George Steinberg was, was far more an obstacle than a, than a, a propelling uh, yeah. force for them.
2: I think, uh, so I'm about to be 35 years old. I grew up in the 90s. That was my team. That was my generation. I really don't remember at all the early 90s. So I've read and learned about it. People don't acknowledge this enough. The only reason the Yankees dynasty was able to happen is because George was banned from baseball. <laughs> okay? So it's yep. like, let's not forget that fact. Did he do a lot of good things for the, for the organization? Of course. But uh, yeah, that fact definitely remains. All right. Last question for you. I've been asking everybody that we've been doing these
3: preview episodes
2: with, what new rule are you most looking forward
3: to this year? I mean, I'd be disingenuous if I didn't say as a, a beat reporter who's at games all the time and whose who's working hours are defined by how long the game is, that it, that it isn't gotcha. the pitch clock. I think in terms of intrigue, you know, I, I would like to see more stolen bases and I, I'm interested in seeing how uh, these slightly larger bases, I, I think that the rule with disengagements as much as I hate saying the word disengagement as often as I'm going to have to this year. Uh, that, that intrigues me the most to see if we do get more stolen bases because that's such a fun part of the game. You go back and watch a game from the 1980s uh, and guys are running all over the place. That, that is a fun way to play the sport and we just haven't seen it a lot in the last years.
2: Yeah. I was reading an article yesterday that said the year of the stolen base was was, was the headline and guys talking about, yes, the, the larger base, but also the pitch clock is going to be a factor there too, to your point about speeding up the game, but just having that pitch clock in the pickoff attempt rules, all sort of bubbling up to probably more stolen bases. I, I'm definitely most most excited about the pitch clock as well. Um, I'm a little, I have a little bit of tempered expectations for the shift. I don't know how much it's actually going to impact things. I'm kind of going to be in a wait and see mindset there.
3: Yeah. I think, you know, some of the, the early research uh, before it was put into place, didn't think it would, it would have too much of an impact in spring. It did have a little bit more than I expected. So I'm, I'm intrigued by that to, as well to see how it goes. But, you know, the pitch clock tells me when I'm getting, you know, it helps, it helps me get home, home earlier than otherwise. So I like that. Well, you
2: don't like, you don't like those three hour and 54 minute Three to two games with 19 walks and five, you know, four solo home runs is the only scoring.
3: I uh, covered a lot of Red Sox-Yankees games in my life, <laughs> so I, I know those well. I know those two well. Absolutely.
2: The, su- the Sunday night four-hour games were always the best. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and by best, I mean the worst.
3: Four-hour four was nice. You could you'd take four hours going into it. Yeah.
2: All right, Tim, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Uh, Go check out uh, Tim on Twitter at Tim Britton. He covers the Mets, but also obviously baseball for the Athletic. Thank you so much.
3: Thanks for having me. Anytime.
2: Hey, guys, thanks for listening to the Bronx Pinstripe Show. Make sure you find us on iTunes and subscribe so you can get all new episodes directly onto your phone. If you do like the show, We'd love for you to take a minute and give us a five-star rating and review in iTunes. It really helps us out and allows us to create more shows. We're on Twitter at Bronx Pinstripes and the same on Facebook. You can always find us there talking Yankee baseball. Thanks again, guys, for your support. Really appreciate it. And go Yankees.